of Galatians chapter 2. This is Paul the Apostle speaking. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no, no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave to me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we just want to take a moment to come before your throne on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, knowing that we are accepted before you because we have a great high priest in the heavenlies who has completed the, the work to bring us into your presence. Lord, we don't deserve to be there, but here we are. And we just want to ask, first of all, that you would be with our brothers and sisters who are traveling right now back from Spain. We ask that you would keep them safe. We ask that you would uh, cause the conversations that they've had and the commitments that were made through those conversations to, uh, to take root and to strengthen and to grow and bear fruit on their own. We pray that you would strengthen the churches there in Spain and grow their numbers. Father, we pray that you would uh, keep these folks safe as they travel back this afternoon. Lord, we also ask for our partnerships in the gospel with the thousands of other churches who participate together in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Lord, as we approach in these next few days the annual meeting of the SBC and are mindful of some of the controversies and conflicts and uh, some of the uh, even wickedness that has been exposed, uh, 
among your people. First of all, we want to own that, God. That we may, on an individual level, may not have done this or that, but Lord, we come before you a... We're, we're, <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips, and I belong to a people of unclean lips, and sometimes unclean lives. And so, Father, we come before you begging that you would forgive and cleanse and that you would cause brokenness and humility to prevail and not power and posturing and pride. Lord, I pray that you would give wisdom to the faithful men and women who are behind the scenes working to... uh, lead in some of these areas. Father, we, we don't presume to know what needs to happen in all the specifics, but Father, I pray that you would just bless uh, and that you would make our churches the safest, most loving, most righteous places for children and women and the weak and everyone, Father. I pray that you would make our church a, on the vanguard of that. And then, Father, also we want to lift up our Vacation Bible School, which starts tonight. Uh, we, we ask that every element of this program would point our children and our neighbors and our friends to you. And, Lord, if there's anything that we are doing that distracts or detracts from that, I pray that you would expose that to us so that we can change. And that you would just use our weakness and our, our uh, meager attempts to represent you well. And that you would show up and uh, be uh, in all these different things, the teachings, the crafts, the interactions, and informal conversations that take place throughout the rest of this week. And then, Father, as we turn to your word in the book of Galatians, we ask that you would show us the difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the false gospel of Jesus plus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. If you want to know what is important to a society, you have to look at the stories that society, that community tells to its children. As I look back on my early years as a child, it's evident to me that the stories that I was told, the heroes that I was made to venerate, had as much, if not more, of a shaping influence on my worldview and my values as anything else that I learned in school or around the dinner table. For example, one of those stories was the very short career of a captain in the Connecticut militia, a man by the name of Nathan Hale. How many of you remember hearing about Nathan Hale when you were in school? Okay, a few of you. For those of you who need a refresher, as I did, (laughs) Nathan Hale was 21 years old when he volunteered to cross the East River from Manhattan and gather information behind British lines on Long Island during the Revolutionary War. Shortly after he arrived behind British lines, A member of the Queen's Rangers recognized Hale and apprehended him, and he was hanged as a spy on the morning of September 22nd, 1776. Now, when I was a kid, I can't remember which grade I was in, uh, but our class actually put on a little skit during one of these patriotic 
you know, pageants that elementary schools sometimes put on, and I had the distinguished honor to play Nathan Hale himself. And so I memorized his purported final words. You remember what he said? He said, say it with me if you remember, I regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. That story is just ingrained in us, right? Uh, it powerfully shaped my thinking about the idea of America. I'm sure you know what I mean. I, I hear Texans, I didn't grow up in Texas, but I hear Texans talk about the Alamo, and I, they kind of talk about it in the same sort of way, like shapes the identity of what it means to be in Texas. Well, put yourself in the sandals of a little boy or girl growing up in Judea in the first century. They had stories too, stories that shaped their values, that solidified for good or bad their understanding of what it meant to be a member of God's special people, the nation of Israel. And you can actually read some of these stories today in the books of the Apocrypha. Uh, Books like 4th Maccabees go into great detail about the heroic patriotism of Jewish men and women living through some of Israel's darkest moments. Uh, I imagine most of you probably have not read these stories. I'm no expert on the Apocrypha, and I'm certainly not endorsing the historical or theological reliability of these books. But if you take the time to read them, you'll get a glimpse into why Jews in the first century had such a hard time accepting the entailments of the gospel. That in Christ, the boundaries between Jew and Gentile were actually broken down. That would be almost like saying to them, that that, that would be like saying Nathan Hale died for no reason, or uh, Abraham Lincoln was a dangerous tyrant, or that Martin Luther King Jr. should be forgotten and despised. I mean, it would have been offensive to them. I'll give you an example, a story that came, uh, shaped the Jewish imagination in 4th Maccabees. Uh, we're told about an aged priest by the name of Eleazar. Uh, Eleazar lived during the infamous reign of the ungodly tyrant Antiochus IV, a man who desecrated the temple and actually executed young mothers who had their babies circumcised. They would be thrown from a window. I'm serious. Uh, he was sort of an ancient Hitler who wanted to stamp out Jews and Judaism for good. Well, Eleazar gets arrested, and he gets brought before Antiochus, and they say, you know, you need to renounce the Jewish faith. You need to renounce Judaism. And the way that he was asked to do that was by eating pork. And they said, we're, we're going to put some pork in front of you, and you eat this pork. And as you know, that's forbidden according to the Old Testament food laws. And as you might expect, Eleazar, this old priest, he refuses to do this. And so they strip his clothes off of his back, and they begin to whip him until his flesh is just in ribbons. And they kick him, and they scream at him, and still he doesn't give in. Finally, out of pity, uh, one of the soldiers uh, kind of secretly comes up to him and says, hey, I've got some kosher meat that, uh, that I've cooked. Nobody can tell the difference. Uh, eat that. If you'll just pretend you're eating pork, just pretend, then, then we'll be able to let you go and let you live. Even this, he turns down. At this point, the text goes on to describe in horrifying detail all these tortures that Eliezer has to endure. And then uh, he still refuses, and he, he utters supposedly these last words. He says, You know, O God, that though I might have saved myself, I am dying in burning torments for the sake of the law. 
Be merciful to your people and let our punishment suffice for them. Make my blood their purification and take my life in exchange for theirs. And after he says this, Eleazar dies. So when we read accounts like Acts 15, the passage that Jeff read a few minutes ago, or Paul's letter to the Galatians, it's easy for us, from our perspective 2,000 years ago, to say something like, well, why are, they so, why are they making such a big deal out of these things? This shouldn't be that big of a deal. And yet, if you think about their heritage, their ancestors, their grandfathers and their grandmothers, and the fact that they were tortured and killed because they refused to blend in with the Gentiles, and now Paul is, is actually telling people everywhere that they can be justified, that they can be saved, that they can enjoy all the promises of God reserved for his beloved children apart from the works of the law. Without circumcision, without changing their diet, without observing the Sabbath, can you imagine how radical that must have seemed? How unpalatable, how disgusting it must have seemed to first century Jews. Now, we're going to deep dive into Paul's warrant for saying all of those things next week when we start to get into the theological part of, of Galatians. But you can see why from very early days in the life of the church, the pressure was strong to take the message of Jesus and to sort of add an asterisk to it. Like to, in simply, in, instead of simply preaching Christ, there were those who just, they just couldn't stomach the offer of free salvation to the Gentiles. And so they began to espouse a message that, that you might call Jesus plus. Jesus plus being circumcised. Jesus plus avoiding unclean food. Jesus plus Sabbath keeping. And, and of course, Jesus plus fill in the blank is just as much of a threat today as it was back then. So having shown in the prior chapter that his gospel came from Jesus, not from a mere man, Paul shifts gears a little bit because he needs to explain to the Galatians how, uh, what, what's the real background behind the lies that these false brothers are spreading among the churches of Galatia. Uh, the Galatians might have asked, well, Paul, if your authority as an apostle is so unquestioned, and if all the believers in Judea were rejoicing and glorifying God because of you, like he says in chapter 1, if that's really true, then why are we hearing that you and the other apostles weren't on the same page? And why are we hearing that you and Peter, like the, the one who was really close to the Lord, why are we hearing that you and Peter were not on the same page? You've got to explain this. And so Paul's going to do this in, in chapter 2. He's going to explain, and, and the sequence of the events that he offers are going to provide us with four reasons that this gospel distortion, the gospel of Jesus plus, is a corrosive and dangerous poison that must be radically amputated from the life of the church. So notice with me in the first place from verses 1 and 2, the gospel of Jesus plus corrodes gospel fruitfulness. It corrodes gospel fruitfulness. Uh, Paul says, he says after 14 years, probably this is 14 years after his conversion, he goes up to Jerusalem from Antioch. And, and remember, he's been in Syria and Cilicia uh, ministering for all these years. Uh, we're told in the book of Acts that he had traveled to Tarsus, his hometown in Cilicia. And then Barnabas had left Antioch and traveled to Tarsus to find Paul and then bring him back to the city of Antioch. And then uh, 
he, uh, he, from there, finally makes this trip back to Jerusalem all these years later. And he cites two reasons for going back. First, he went up because of a revelation. Uh, God said something that made him realize that he needed to go. This might have been the prophecy of a man named Agabus who had told the church in Antioch, hey, the, the, the famine of, of uh, this great famine is going to come and, and kind of envelop the region of Judea and the people are going to suffer. And so at that time, through that revelation, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned to go and, and provide some famine relief through the church in Antioch. And, and so that's one of the reasons that he decides to go. And then the second reason is because he's afraid. Notice verse 2. He says, I wanted to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. In other words, Paul is afraid that this ministry that he's been doing is going to be wasted. I mean, after 14 years. And so, here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that he wants to double-check after 14 years whether his message is the right message. That's not what he's going there to do. That's not what he's afraid of. He's already established that he didn't need to do that because he got his message from the Lord Jesus himself. So he's not afraid that he might have been teaching the wrong thing. The, the wrong thing. So here's what he is afraid of. He's afraid that while he's been laboring to minister to the Gentiles, the other apostles are saying things that actually don't line up with the gospel that Jesus gave to all of them. And so what's going to happen is it's going to cause a split right down the middle of the church, and he wants to meet with them in private to ensure that they can all get on the same page and present a unified picture of the gospel and its entailment. So what he's afraid of is, I've done all this work, and all these people have come to Christ, and if we do not show that this is the one true gospel, if we don't stick with what Jesus gave us, then all these people are going to fall away. If the Jerusalem apostles are saying things that contradict the message of Jesus, then all the converts they've reached, all the progress they've made, it's all going to come to nothing. You see, all the apostles were preaching that Jesus died for sinners and rose again. There was no question about that. And all the apostles were inviting sinners to believe. But the pull, the, the tug of the works of the law was so sneaky and so strong See, believers who grew up in Jewish families were still Jews. They still circumcised their infant sons. They still went to the temple for the feasts. They still avoided unclean foods. They still kept the Sabbath. And those customs were so ingrained in them that they couldn't imagine, they couldn't wrap their minds around someone following Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and yet failing to embrace the Jewish lifestyle. They just couldn't fathom that. And so... Uh, the, the water, this is the water that the Jerusalem apostles are swimming in, and, and Paul was concerned that they might not see just how devastating it would be if they forced everybody to, to follow these requirements. So the gospel of Jesus plus was actually threatening the unity among the apostles, and by extension, it was threatening their ability to bear fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had worked so hard to bring the message of the cross to all these believers, and he was preaching that Jesus was enough, that all who were in Christ would be saved, that there was no works of righteousness that anyone could do to add to the work of Christ. To add that element to the message, it would have been like taking a, a bucket of maggots and, and pouring them into a basket of apples. It would be devastating and take all the fruit that Paul was working towards and destroy. Now, 
I, I don't see a lot of people here in Mineral Wells. Maybe they're out there, but I don't see them. I don't see a lot of people here in Mineral Wells preaching that if you don't get circumcised and become a Jew, then you can't be saved. But there are modern versions of Jesus Plus out there today, and they're just as destructive of the unity and the fruitfulness of the gospel. Uh, last week, I mentioned the Puritan Thomas Boston. Uh, Jesus Plus was poisoning the church in Boston's day, too. Historian Sinclair Ferguson, in his 2016 book, The Whole Christ, tells of a time in, in which the church had actually uh, devolved in their gospel preaching to where the effects, the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ on our moral lives was actually becoming, in their preaching, a prerequisite for actually inviting them to believe in Christ. Like, before, unless they saw obedience to Christ, they didn't preach Christ to those people. And uh, it was subtle. It was sneaky. Since repentance and holy living and a whole host of other realities are evidences of a changed heart, then the offer of the gospel must not be even extended to those who lack these qualities. So they were kind of saying, hey, it's Jesus plus. When you show that, that you've got a changed heart and that God's working in your life, well, then I can give you assurance and tell you Christ died for you. Well, on the contrary, the Bible instructs us simply to preach Christ crucified. The death of Christ and his resurrection are the only basis of our hope and the only prerequisite for the offer of the good news. You don't have to qualify to become a believer in Jesus. That's the whole point. None of us qualifies to become a believer in Jesus. Only Jesus qualifies, and therefore you are without hope unless you have him. Nothing else qualifies you to do that. And it wasn't until these ancient divines began to peel away at everything that they had added to Christ and just simply preach Christ crucified, that they saw sinners believe and be transformed. See, what, what had happened? They had taken the gospel of Jesus and they had added something to it and they started preaching Jesus plus and it destroyed their ability to bear fruit. And when they took that plus away, the fruit was there. So what about us? What have we added to the gospel? How have we improved it? How have we made our pet issues into non-negotiable prerequisites for coming to Christ? Uh, listen, you don't have to agree with me and my political views to come to Christ. Just come to Christ. You don't have to be a Baptist to come to Christ. Just come to Jesus. I don't care who you are or what you've done or what you're guilty of. The very first thing that you, must to do, that you must do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do that, if you are trusting in Jesus, you will be saved. All may bring their burden of sin and lay it at the foot of the cross, no matter what's inside that burden. So are you a greedy man? Are you an angry woman? Then come to Jesus. Are you a pervert or a bully? Come to Jesus. Are you a homosexual or a murderer or a liar or a coward? There are many more like you who have come to Jesus and have received full and total and immediate forgiveness of sin. So come to him. There is no prerequisite. There is no addendum. There is no price you must pay. It has already been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So come to him. So let's, Indian Creek, let's beware of Jesus' blessed. 
because what it does is it removes our ability to bear fruit for the Lord Jesus. First of all, any, uh, uh, Jesus plus corrodes gospel fruitfulness. And in the second place, from verses 3 through 5, Jesus plus corrupts gospel freedom. It corrupts gospel freedom. Now, Paul makes it clear in these verses that he's brought Titus along with him on this journey. And the reason that he does this is because Titus is sort of a test case in this particular theological question. That must have been really intimidating for Titus uh, because Titus happened to be a Gentile. He didn't grow up with Jewish scruples. He wasn't a member of the covenant people of God until the day that Paul preached Christ to him. And I know it's kind of gross to think about, but what people were saying is something like, hey, Titus, come come on over to the side here, all right? I'm glad you're a believer in Jesus. That's great. Now, let's really seal the deal. We've got to schedule a little surgery for you. I mean, Titus must have been really nervous. I mean, who does God make all these promises to? He makes the promises to the Jews, and you've got to become a Jew, so you've got to do this thing. And, and so uh, if you're going to be a recipient of God's promises, then you need to have this little procedure done. And even though Titus had avoided it up to that point, I imagine he might have felt a little bit nervous when Paul said, hey, I'm going to go meet with the apostles and talk with them about circumcision. Okay, hope the meeting goes well. But the good news is, that when Paul and the other apostles meet, they agreed with Paul. Uh, Titus didn't have to be circumcised in order to belong to Christ. After all, these were Jesus' apostles. And I keep emphasizing this. It's so important. They all got their message from Jesus, and the Holy Spirit was constantly reminding them of the things that Jesus had taught. And so they're all preaching the same message, and they all reach the same conclusion. Titus you don't need to be circumcised in order to belong to Jesus. And it would have been great if that were the end of the story, but there are these sneaky guys that come in, and we don't know a lot of details about these men that Paul calls false brothers. We don't know how they got in. We don't know how, what strategy they used to kind of wedge their way into the conversation. But somehow they, they begin to make trouble for everybody and Paul talks about these in verses 3 and following. Notice a couple of things about these false brothers. Uh, first of all, notice that they appear on the surface to belong to Jesus, but they really don't. They're, they're masquerading as genuine followers of Christ. That's critical. What does it tell us? It tells us that even during the apostles' ministry, the very church of God had a problem with imposters. And the same is true today. If, it, it would be great if everybody who has a fish uh, glued to their back of their car was really a real Christian in their heart. But you know that that's not reality. In fact, not everybody who teaches Sunday school or preaches from a pulpit is a real brother either. It's just a fact. God's people have to be on guard because Satan and his armies, they are going to be deceptive in the way that they uh, make war against the people of God. They're going to try to infiltrate God's church by propping up these false teachers who seem trustworthy, but they're actually poisoning the church from the inside out. So these guys look like Christians, but they're really fakers. So that's number one. Secondly, notice their aim. They want to spy out the freedom that believers have in Christ. 
and bring them into slavery. See, because of the work of Jesus, and we'll get into this in even greater detail next week and the weeks to follow, but because of the work of, of Christ, believers are freed from the demands of the old covenant, the law of Moses. And all the sacrifices and all the Sabbaths and ceremonies were all designed to point us to a person who would come and actually bring believers into a right relationship with God. And when that person came, when Jesus came, all those things that pointed to Jesus didn't need to be there anymore because he had come. And so when he fulfilled the demands of the law, it wasn't necessary that we continue to act like we're under that law anymore. So Titus and Paul and you and I are freed from these requirements. The entire law was kept by Christ for me. The curse that the law demands was poured out on the body of Christ for me. I can't be condemned by the law. But what these false brothers were teaching is that Christ's work wasn't enough. And that is serious. Notice the stakes in verse 5. What does Paul say in verse 5? He says, we didn't yield to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The gospel itself, the message that saves you is at stake. In other words, if Paul had allowed this teaching to gain a foothold in the church, they would have lost the gospel itself. And it's going to take the rest of the letter to show why that's the case. And even though we live in a different context today, we're still dealing with these enslaving ideologies that come in and, and add that asterisk to the message of the cross, and they take away our freedom that we enjoy in Christ. I mean, think about all the different messages that we hear today. If you want to be saved, you have to pray the right words. If you want to be saved, you have to come forward to the front of the church. If you really want to be saved, you have to be baptized. Some of you have said some of these things. If you want to be saved, you have to be a part of a specific church. If you want to be saved, you have to stay away from people who speak in tongues. If you want to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. Real Christians sing hymns and are very formal in their worship. No, no, no. Real Christians lift their hands and they get very emotional in worship. Do you see what I mean? What we're doing is we're taking our preferences and our laws and improving the gospel, the message of the cross, and instead of preaching Jesus, we're prescribing works. It's not enough to preach Jesus. We, we need to place a law on our hearers in some way. Here's what we're really doing. Uh, and Sinclair Ferguson, the man I, I mentioned earlier, he really, in that book, The Whole Christ, he hits the nail on the head. He says, what we're doing is we are ascribing to God a narrow and restrictive spirit. In other words, Jesus plus, it enslaves us to a relationship with a false God, a God who is petty and exacting and always annoyed with us, a God who is like a lot of people that we know here in this earth. And this is as old as the Garden of Eden. Uh, do you remember how Satan reasoned with Eve? How did he start? He said, didn't God say that you're not allowed to eat any of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? You remember that? He starts off with an assumption that God is unkind. And these false brothers, in their attempt to protect the law, were actually communicating something like this about the character of God. God wants you to be enslaved. And it's not a good thing, but it's, it's just the way it is, and you've got to deal with it. 
You see, Jesus plus, it actually corrodes our fruitfulness and it takes away our gospel freedom. But thirdly, notice from verses 6 through 10, Jesus plus contradicts gospel fellowship. Jesus plus contradicts gospel fellowship. Uh, Remarkably, Paul says that these so-called pillars, by the way, I don't think he's putting down Peter and James and John. I think he's just showing that uh, he is on an equal playing field with them because he also is an apostle of Christ. But he says that the pillars, they didn't add anything to his message. Instead, they recognized that Paul had a unique role in the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. That they were ministering to the Jews there in Jerusalem, and Paul's ministry at that time was to the nations. And so we're told they gave to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. That doesn't just mean that they shook hands. What it means is that they publicly acknowledged the, the legitimacy and the value and the authority of Paul's message and his ministry and his authority as an apostle. And that is a huge deal. So instead of saying that Paul needed to add anything to his message of the cross, they, they recognized that he was preaching the genuine gospel and that he was sent into a different context from theirs. So this is remarkable because here's what, here's what Paul's uh, opponents are saying to the Galatians. They're saying Paul's not a, a real apostle. His message is missing something, and he was actually at odds with the apostles uh, themselves. And Paul shows through this account that's not the case at all. And the, the account from Acts 15 shows that that's not the case at all because They're all on the same page. And then look at verse 10. This is really important too. They ask him to remember the poor, which he's already doing. Uh, Keep in mind what's taking place at this time in history. Uh, There's this huge famine overshadowing all of Palestine. The church in Jerusalem finds itself in serious financial straits. People are starving And so the Jerusalem apostles are ministering in a context where the way that they treat the poor, the way that they treat those who are down and out, is a a huge factor in their testimony. And they recognize that, that the way that someone treats the poor is actually going to communicate something about what they believe about Jesus. Now, what kind of a person was Jesus? He was someone who preached the good news to the who? To the poor, right? He says that in in the book of Luke. And so they understand that, that this Christ-like compassion for the poor is part and parcel of, of following Christ. And they're asking Paul, even though he ministers in a different context, even though he ministers among people who are a lot wealthier than those in Jerusalem, he's still got to remember the poor. So what that tells me is that there are ethical entailments to gospel ministry that apply no matter what context you're in. There are these moral standards that don't fall into the same category as circumcision or food law. See, you don't have to be a Jew in order to be in Christ, but you do have to, you do have to be in Christ and then live the way that Jesus asks us to live. That's an outflow of living in, in Christ. And so, in this, these few verses, you've got these three characteristics of the early apostolic fellowship. Uh, there, there's unity in the essentials of the gospel. They're all preaching the same message. But there's diversity and appreciation for that diversity in their various ministry callings. And then there's this generosity when it comes to their treatment of the poor. Three marks of genuine gospel ministry and, and gospel fellowship. Unity of the gospel, diversity of callings and diversity of mission, and then generosity when it comes to the treatment of the poor. 
And, and he's going to move forward in the letter, and each one of these things he's going to expand on a little bit in the rest of Galatians. Uh, but for the moment, suffice it to say that these beautiful features of early church ministry are the very things that the gospel of Jesus plus is contradicting. So folks, listen, that not everybody has the same calling. Not everyone has the same mission field. Can you imagine what would have happened in the early church if the apostles had not recognized that this was the case? I mean, if they had not recognized that Paul was sent to the Gentiles and they to the circumcision, you and I would not even be here today. The gospel may have been lost altogether. But these men had the spiritual understanding to recognize that the message of the cross can travel to different cultures and different regions. And on the surface, it might look a little different in the way that it's applied in those various cultures. But that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. Because Paul was able to reach people that Peter could never have reached and vice versa. That's God's plan. There's one message, but we bring it to all peoples. And when the gospel reaches into Jerusalem or Antioch or uh, Tarsus or Texas or Spain or Indonesia or anywhere else, it doesn't ask us all to conform to, to one set of ethnic idiosyncrasies. It applies in all these different ways. And I don't know who needs to hear this, but the gospel of Jesus is not the gospel of the United States of America. It's not the gospel. It's not an American message. There are millions of believers all around the world who live very differently from us. And sometimes in substantive ways, right? Their music is different. Their Dress is different. Their political commitments are different. And we've got to learn to parse the difference between the cross and its necessary entailments and our particular local expression of what it means to follow Jesus in this time and this place. And recognize that God's got people in all these other different flocks all across the world. And appreciate the fact that they might look a little different from us. You don't have to be someone that you're not. And you better not look down on somebody else because their culture and their personality and their preferences are different from yours. Even in the city of Mineral Wells, this is the case. There are plenty of different types of churches here in Mineral Wells. And those of you who have kind of checked out different churches before ending up here, you know that this is the case. And listen, that's a good thing. Because God sends this church to reach maybe this type of person and that church to reach a different type of person that couldn't have been reached by this other church over here. And We need to rejoice in that. We need to celebrate that. But instead, these false brothers come in and they preach a message of Jesus plus. And what it does is it contradicts gospel fellowship. It removes the ability that we have to fellowship with other believers who love the same Jesus but might look different from us. Jesus plus corrodes gospel fruitfulness, it corrupts gospel freedom, it contradicts gospel fellowship. And then finally, from verses 11 through 14, Jesus plus cultivates anti-gospel factions. It cultivates anti-gospel factions. These verses are the last in a sequence of events that Paul describes before launching into a lengthy defense of his gospel doctrine 
but the, the Galatian believers, this is kind of the, a thing that's hanging over them. They still need to know what happened between you and Peter at Antioch. Now, keep in mind, again, as I said last week, that uh, Paul kind of goes back and forth between calling him Peter and calling him Cephas. I have no idea why he does that, uh, but Cephas is just the Aramaic version of the Greek word Peter. You can call him Rocky if you want, because both words mean rock. Uh, that's what those, uh, it's not two different guys, it's the same guy. But how can Paul be preaching the right gospel when he finds himself at odds with Peter himself, with the rock, with the one closest to Jesus, the first among the apostles? Remarkably, even this man, even Peter for a moment, was so enticed by Jesus plus that he actually abandoned his brothers in Christ and without speaking a word, told a bold-faced lie about the truth of the gospel. Uh, did you catch the repeated emphasis in verses 5 and 14? Both verses mention the same phrase, the truth of the gospel. And in both cases, it's not an outright rejection of the message of Jesus Christ. It's a uh, failure. It's, it's a failure to live in light of gospel truth that actually begins to contradict the truth of the gospel itself. So here's what happened. Peter was afraid of his friends. He was willing to eat with the Gentiles at first. He was willing to welcome them, to enjoy table fellowship with, with them. By the way, that would be really radical for a Jew in the first century because it would mean that he was potentially or even purposely eating food that the Jews considered unclean. So remember, in the back of your mind and in the back of Peter's mind are all these stories about people like Eleazar who gave his life under pain of torture to avoid eating unclean food. And Peter grew up with this. And yet, because of his relationship with Jesus, he's willing to set it aside and actually have fellowship around a table, around a meal with Gentiles. That's the gospel that he believes. Uh, in the book of Acts, there's this whole account of how Peter arrived at this conclusion. He had a vision, then he had a conversation with a, a Gentile uh, centurion named Cornelius. So Peter was operating out of his convictions. But then his friends show up. And these are people who have not had to grapple practically with the unity between Jew and Gentile. And they, they show up at the church. They're scandalized. They're totally offended by what they're seeing. I can't believe that a Jew would eat with Gentiles. And maybe Peter's thinking, well, I don't want to offend somebody on, on something that really isn't that important. I don't want to make anybody upset. I'm just going to withdraw, and I'll go eat with the Jews. And, and then when my friends leave, I'll go back, and I'll eat with the Gentiles. And everybody gets the message Really spiritual people do not eat with non-Jews, and even Barnabas gets carried away with this hypocrisy. And so Paul has to actually call out his friend and his colleague and reveal to everybody in front of everybody else, because Peter's actions were public, so Paul's rebuke has to be public, and he says, what you are doing is actually a breakdown of the truth of the gospel itself. It's not something that doesn't matter. You act like a Gentile. You eat unclean food. You eat with Gentiles. You, but when your friends show up, then you want the Gentiles to act like Jews. That doesn't make sense. That's hypocritical. And so in the rest of chapter 2, which we'll get into next week, Paul is going to provide an explanation for why Peter's actions really 
contradict the gospel message. Essentially, Peter's being seduced by a gospel of Jesus plus. And I'm sure if you had asked Peter at that moment to describe the gospel message, he would have hit the same notes as the Apostle Paul. It wasn't that he had begun to uh, preach a different message. It was that he had chosen to live in a way that contradicted that message that he claimed to believe and preach. And this is Paul's accusation. He says, Peter, you are not living in step with the truth of the gospel. Your actions, your behavior shows that gospel truth is not the foremost controlling principle in your mind when you're making the decisions that you make. And I think Peter's actions, they sort of open the window into the psychological uh, state of mind behind the gospel of Jesus plus. Think about this. Why is it that this message would have such power over us? Why would we be seduced by such a message? Isn't it more attractive for us to say, well, we can do whatever we want or something like that? Why would we want to add rules? Let's, re- let's kind of reverse engineer Peter's actions. Why did he stop eating with the Gentiles? Because certain people arrived. Why did that matter? Because Peter was afraid of them. Why was he afraid of them? Because they could damage his reputation among the Jews. Because they could make false accusations about him to the brothers. Because they might alienate him from his family and his countrymen. Why did Peter care about these things? Because for a moment, think about this. In that moment, they seemed larger, more real, more relevant to him than the fact that even though he was no cleaner than a dirty dish rag, God had welcomed him to his heavenly table. Peter had forgotten that. God's lavish and unrelenting love had lost its luster to Peter's mind. The radical grace of God toward him, a sinful and undeserving man, had been obscured in the face of this three-dimensional threat of these false brothers, and their opinion of him became more important than the grace and the the goodness of God in the gospel. What was Peter's problem? He forgot the gospel. He forgot the love of God in Christ. He had downgraded his belief in the free gift of God's grace, and he'd begun to live as though that gift weren't really free and that that gift wasn't really that precious. You want to know why there are factions in the church? why there is bickering and fighting in the church, why fear and anxiety and bitterness and anger are often more prevalent than peace and transparency and generosity. There's a very simple reason why. It's because we forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may be because we never had it to begin with, but think about it. This was the problem for the false brothers. They had this idea in their mind that they had scraped and they had toiled and that they had, they had done the work and they had earned the smile of God and, and they, were not, they were not going to allow somebody to think that they were welcoming God's family when they hadn't done any of that work. They were envious. You really think you can come in here and claim a spot alongside of me without any work? They had forgotten the gospel. Peter was in danger of going the same route. He was living as though his Jewish identity were what earned him a spot at the table. See, for the false brothers, envy was the fuel that was being thrown on the fire. For Peter, it was fear. 
Uh, but the issue is the same. They're living as though the gospel isn't true. And that lies at the root of all of our problems too. We cannot accept the fact that our efforts do not amount to a hill of beans. We cannot accept that being loved by God is more important than being impressive to our peers. We cannot accept that our morality and our wealth and our reputation and our character do not bring us even a smidge closer to God than the washed-up drug addict who looked to Christ in faith. We can't accept the fact that to be loved by God is greater joy than to be loved by a person. And so we break out of step with the gospel and we allow our envy and our fear and our pride to lead us. And before long, we're saying, Jesus plus my performance. Jesus plus enjoying the pleasures of the world. Jesus plus being looked up to by my peers. Jesus is not enough for me. I need something else. And I'm telling you, until the cross is sufficient... Until Jesus is enough, until you've reached the conclusion that everything else is dung and rubbish and that Christ alone is your hope, then you are going to be unfruitful in your ministry. You are going to be enslaved to anger and to the law. You're going to constantly be creating rifts between yourself and your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're not going to be able to, to walk in unity with your brothers. So, what's the solution? The solution is to get back to the simple message of Christ crucified. To be like that tax collector. You remember what Jesus said about the tax collector? He came to the temple to pray and he fell on his face and he wouldn't even look up into the heavens and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, he walked away justified. And if you can allow that truth to take root in your heart, then you'll begin to see very quickly a life of fruitfulness, a life of freedom, a life of unity, a life of welcome and fellowship with your family, a life free from fear and a life free from envy, a life of joy in Christ. So folks, this is why we need to study a book like Galatians, because we are so prone to create a gospel in the image of what we think God is often like, that he is angry that he is vindictive, that he is annoyed with us, that he doesn't want to welcome us, and we forget who he is. And when we forget who our God is, we twist the gospel, and when we do that, we lose all the things that the gospel does. And folks, may it never be. Let's get back to Christ crucified. And let's do away with the gospel of Jesus plus and get back to Christ alone.